Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I can't imagine what the circumstances are for the team at this time. What I can tell you is that Mr. Edwards indicated that he tried to work through this deal with his partners, and they're simply unable to move forward with shouldering greater costs. Okay, well, wow, what a roller coaster it's been uh, for Flames fans over the last couple of months here from, oh, wow, this team's really good, to, oh, wow, this team's got a lot of COVID, to, oh, wow, the arena deal's dead. So is it? I mean, it kind of looks like it is. That was uh, Mayor Jody Gondek commenting yesterday on the situation. That uh, what Murray Edwards, primary shareholder of the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation, uh, told her was that the Flames were pulling out of this deal. Now, what exactly happened here? Obviously, costs have risen. And, and that's not a new thing, right? So th- this is something the project's been dealing with for some months now, uh, dealing with rising costs. The final straw, it seems, were some new costs that came to light. Now, were these costs identified by the city's review or these new costs that the city is trying to impose on the flames? I guess it depends who you ask. Uh, but there's costs related to infrastructure, sidewalks, right of way, and, and also some infrastructure that's been deemed like climate mitigation, whatever that might entail. I don't know if that's uh, flood protection or you know, clean energy kind of uh, things. I'm not really sure what that involves anyway. In identifying those costs and allocating the responsibility for those costs, it would be about $9.7 million for the Flames. Now, it might seem silly for the Flames to walk away over $9.7 million, but they say it's about much more than that. But nonetheless, they say they are walking away. Now, we're apparently going to hear from both sides here, both the mayor and the Flames, coming up a little bit later on this afternoon. I think maybe both in the next hour. So we'll keep an eye on that and try to bring some of that to you. But joining us uh, off the top of this afternoon to talk about where things stand, how we got to this point, Ryan Pike is managing editor at Flames Nation, flamesnation.ca. Ryan, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I think everyone's, you know, picking their job, the, the floor here and trying to figure out what's going on or what went sideways. What, what's your read on the situation? Well, it's, it's definitely been an eventful, I think, 36 hours for hockey fans in this market. I mean, oh, man, yeah. you know, the uh, the NHLers aren't going to the Olympics. Uh, I believe the, the Saddledome, when, uh, when we have another game, will be half capacity. And then this dropped uh, yesterday. Uh, the, the short of it seems to be that uh, I think both sides feel like they can't really give much more financially than they've been asked to give at this point. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think we that's that's been clear, right? That neither side has been happy about these cost increases, and you know, as, as the Flames note, there, there's a lot of uncertainty they're dealing with, not just around this project, but just in terms of uh, their own bottom line. So do you think that this was just a, a final straw kind of thing, or was there something really specific about these, these new costs that just came to light? 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say at the, at the forefront, we don't have a ton of granular details about mm-hmm. what both sides are saying the additional costs are. Uh, but what we do know is, you know, when they, when they changed up the, the deal in July of 2021, what ended up happening was initially the, the, the capital, I believe the, the cost of the building was estimated at $550 million, which each side shipping in $275 million each. And then there's some complicated uh, mechanisms where the city would get some money back based on rent. But uh, up front, 275 275 which kind of makes sense. Right. Uh, then there were some cost escalations in the interim. Obviously, you know, the, the initial budget was sort of set up with them looking at sort of what other comparable buildings cost and going, okay, this cost about this much, I think you'll do it. Uh, of course, <laughs> while, you're, while they're coming up with the deal, uh, things cost a bit more. So when they finally, you know, sat down and sort of did a bit more of a detailed estimate, it ended up swelling to about $608.5 million. And so at that point, you know, there, there was a, a clause in the original agreement where if there, if costs escalated to a certain point, the first 25 million would be split 50 50, mm-hmm. uh, 12.5 and 12.5. And anything else, they need to sit down and have a serious talk about, okay, wh- what's going on with uh, the cost inflation. And at that point, they sat down, that was in July of 2021, and they agreed to go forward. Uh, the, the city had communicated to the flames that, hey, we can't give much more than this extra 12.5. So that bumped up their contribution to about 287.5 million. And the, the flames were on the hook for 321 million. And then, of course, the, the, you know, they, they keep moving forward and they seriously cost it out. And, you know, we're at the point now where, you know, in November they had their, their development, uh, development committee hearing where the, the planning commission set, sits down and sort of looks at the entire process and basically says, here's what you need. And, you know, the, the planning commission isn't you know, entirely city employees. It's a mixture of, you know, architects and designers and city employees. Basically, the idea is you want to make sure that something's up to snuff. Yeah. And so as part of that, it cleared the planning commission, but there's 78 conditions. Uh, one of the conditions was, for example, uh, the week before the, the city had uh, had passed its climate strategy. And so it was deemed in the discussion that it'd be kind of a bad look if there was absolutely no climate mitigation built into the design. So that's where the solar paneling came in, for example. And I believe there's some wastewater mitigation too, but I can't I can't remember the exact specifics on that. Uh, and so as part of the, the process of clearing the, the, the development committee uh, and all their, their conditions, the flames all of a sudden have a bit more of a price tag than they anticipated. Um, depending on what numbers you work with, uh, it's about $650 million for the total project cost. And, you know, with the, the most recent agreement, the city is only going to be paying for, at least based on how the agreements look now, uh, 687.5, as agreed to in July. So, you know, it's it's tough because if you're the Flames, I mean, they just played a, a season last year with absolutely no fans. This yeah. season, uh, the arena has been, you know, about out of a capacity of about 19,000. They've been having, I'd say, about 14, 15,000 in the rink from uh, from a game to game basis. Not not from not terrible, but not nearly what they had before the pandemic. And the season before, they lost their last eight home games because of the pandemic wiping out that part of the season. So. You know, Forbes estimated uh, most recently that in the last year, the Flames have lost about $13 million operationally. I do not know if those are the correct numbers, but they sound about right because looking at sort of the financial impacts on, on the team, it, it's really expensive to be paying, uh, you know, paying NHL players and not getting a lot of gate revenue. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they're supposed to host the Oilers on Monday. Whether that happens or not, I guess, remains to be seen. But it uh, looks as though it'll be a situation with, what, 50% capacity and uh, no food or drinks being sold. 
Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. if you're the Flames, I mean, you're getting half of your usual ticket revenue and zero uh, food or beverage revenue. And I think they might get some parking revenue, depending on what uh, what parking lots people use. But, you know, it, it's it's a big bite out of the bottom line. And, you know, in a, in a broader context, I know, you know, there's no love lost for, for billionaires. And we're not asking anyone to really shed a tear for anyone. But, you know, if you're Murray Edwards, the, the, the oil market has really taken a step back in the last few years commodity prices dropped to the point where you know the there was you know when the pandemic began gas wholesalers were taking complete losses on entire uh you know entire runs of gas to open up their their wholesale space again so you know anyone who's working in oil and gas and whose whose you know entire business is oil and gas it's not like they have a lot of cash on hand so you know if you're already eating you know, extra costs here and there, and you know, your project partner comes to you. Even you know, even if the cost, you know, even if the costs are entirely well intentioned, they are needed. They're something that needs to be put in there to make sure the buildings up the stuff. Uh, if you keep coming back to them over and over again, I can understand why they feel like they're being used in a, as an ATM. And similarly, I mean, you know, the, the city budget is not exactly flush right now, and I imagine any capital money they have laying around, they're not exactly going to be throwing it at the, at the arena. They'll be throwing it at, at other parts of the city, and most importantly, the green line. So from both standpoints, you can kind of wrap your head around why both sides be a little bit hesitant to commit to spending more than they already have when both sides have already committed to spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and making decisions to spend on that rather than spend on other things. Well, and that kind of brings us to the question of, you know, where this might all go next. And and maybe it is, as you kind of alluded to, a situation where both sides just say, yeah, maybe now's not the time to go ahead. Let's stick with the status quo and maybe we'll we'll talk about this in a few years. Um, maybe this is, uh, you know, pressure move by the flames to get the city to take on some of those costs. Or, or maybe, you know, we're, we're at a point where we're talking about the future of the team in Calgary, which seems most likely to you at this point. Well, I mean, I'll take the things at face value at, at the notion that, you know, they're looking at, at sticking around the sad loans of the foreseeable future, if only because, you know, they're, when the world is normal-ish, they're, they're not a bad draw in town. They tend to, to generate a lot of revenue for the league, mm-hmm. and it doesn't make a lot of sense to move them away from, from Edmonton. Like, you have that natural pairing, so for a lot of reasons... The flames in Calgary make a lot of sense, but you know, in, in the medium term, you know, let's just let's just say hypothetically. I mean, if you and I, you know, were tasked with sitting down and sit, putting together, putting a number on paper and saying with 100% certainty, this arena by the time it opens in 2024 will cost X dollars, I would not want to do that because I have no idea. The commodity markets and and you know, supply chains for construction implements are hugely volatile right now. So. If you're the Flames and you're on the hook for potential cost overruns, especially if, you know, let's be honest, originally the the groundbreaking was supposed to be in August. So they would have yeah. had, you know, the summer and the fall to get things going. And then, you know, you pick up and go full bore in the early part of 2022. They lost that time. But they're still aiming at, you know, if this goes ahead, opening to building in 2024 in times of the NHL season. So, you know. It's not out of the realm of possibility that even if it does go forward and everything gets smoothed out, they're going to be throwing you know good money after bad to get this thing done on time. And you know, again, I have no idea. I wouldn't want to be you know put on the spot to come up with the numbers. So in that context, I can understand why both sides would be a little bit hesitant to commit to more because you know even if it's you know the original deal was a straight fifty-fifty, I have no idea what fifty percent of this thing is going to cost at the end of it. Uh, but so maybe they can punt and say, okay, you know. When supply chains normalize in two, three, four years, then 
figure, you know, could revisit the deal yeah. and figure if you can make it work. But that doesn't solve all their problems either, because in the interim, you know, there's, there's been several reports by structural engineers that the satellite needs a bit of work to be, you know, a building you want to spend a lot of time in. I mean, you know, they, they have some, some edifice crumbling, you know, they have some sonar on the roof to make sure that uh, the cables don't snap. So, you know, it's, it's, if they're going to stay in there in the medium term, they're going to need to, you know, either them or the city or probably a combination of them, they're going to need to, to make some investments into making that sure that building's something that people want to spend time in over the long term. Much more at flamesnation.ca. We'll see where it all goes from here. Ryan, appreciate the uh, overview. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Ryan Bike, Managing Editor of Flames Nation, flamesnation.ca. So, I mean, it feels like this kind of came out of nowhere. Maybe it's been building to this. Pardon the pun. Uh, obviously, you know, with issues around cost overruns, the uncertainty about uh, the team's immediate financial future, uh, the uncertainty around supply chain and construction cost issues. So where does this leave us? If indeed costs are rising, who should step up? The city's got some financial pressure. The flames have got some financial pressure. Does that mean maybe now's not the time to move forward? But is one side to blame here? Are the Flames to blame for taking their ball and going home? Is the city to blame or is the mayor to blame for what the Flames view as as new costs being imposed on them or thrown at them? So if this falls apart, I mean, do you view that as, as a bad thing? And who do you blame for that? So like I say, we are set to hear from both sides uh, this afternoon. And maybe we'll get some further clarification on kind of what went sideways here and where this all goes from here. The Flames say, as Ryan just alluded to, the people of Calgary should understand that the CSEC's intentions are to remain in the Scotiabank Saddle Dome, but they say we are deeply disappointed with this outcome. Remember, this event center wasn't the Flames' initial preference, right? They had their own vision for something much different, Calgary Next. So to what extent were they attached to this particular project or determined for it to go ahead? Under the circumstances, maybe it was the best deal they were going to get. But obviously, they've seen enough here that they don't like it in its current manifestation. Later in the hour, we'll talk about rapid tests. Uh, there's a real push now here in Alberta, other provinces, to uh, distribute these tests as widely as possible. Clearly, there's a lot of demand. We're having some trouble matching up the, the demand and the supply. Some people are having a tough time getting their hands on some of these rapid tests. But how valuable is this as a tool? And are we using it the right way? We'll talk about that coming up after 2.30. We'll recap some of the latest COVID news, number of jurisdictions, including uh, Quebec today, posting record numbers uh, of new cases. But also today, some encouraging uh, data from a few different studies uh, regarding uh, Omicron and hospitalization risk. So we'll uh, try to recap all of that. Uh, certainly, as the uh, city of Calgary talks about uh, what appears to be the collapse of this uh, arena deal uh, with the Calgary Flames, uh, perhaps that will mean less time spent talking about uh, Bill 21 in Quebec. But obviously, right across the country, including in Quebec, there is concern about the impact of this legislation. And uh, that was certainly highlighted recently by the fact that a uh, teacher, an elementary school teacher in Quebec, was removed from the classroom. Uh, because of her Islamic faith, she wears a hijab, a headscarf. And this is what this law was intended to do, uh, to prevent that from being worn in the classroom, and I guess then to punish those who, who do so. So it's it's a discriminatory law, and I get that there is the, the concern uh, that exists right across the country. It also highlights uh, another important issue. That Quebec is able to go ahead with this, 
something that clearly, I think, is a violation of religious freedom, because they protected this law with the notwithstanding clause. How do we view the notwithstanding clause? Is this a reasonable democratic check on constitutionally guaranteed rights? Or is this an affront to those rights and the guarantees that uh, the charter and constitutions are, are supposed to provide? You know, the Americans don't have a notwithstanding clause. Your guaranteed rights are your guaranteed rights. You know, they can't play this, this card in the U.S., but Canadian governments can. Well, our next guest says maybe it's time for that to change. Andrew Coyne in the Globe and Mail, the headline, The Notwithstanding Clause Has Destabilized Canada's Constitutional Order. Here's how it can be restored. Andrew Coyne, columnist for the Globe and Mail, joins us this afternoon. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be with you. Uh, with regard to Bill 21 and some of the pushback against it, did you feel it's appropriate for the federal government, other provincial governments, even other municipal governments across the country to condemn this, speak out, push back? In my opinion, yes. I know some people worry that it could be counterproductive, that you'll just simply turn this into an us and them uh, type of fight. But I think when something as manifestly wrong as this is going on, I think it's important to speak out. I think, you know, it's wrong in itself. It's troubling in itself that a, a progressive opinion in Quebec has somehow managed to wrap itself around, its head around the idea that it's acceptable yeah. to pass these kinds of laws. It, you know, everything sort of turned upside down in that respect. But it's even more disturbing to hear people in the rest of Canada saying, oh, well, it's none of our business. Uh, it, it, what Quebec wants to do is their business, etc." And I, I don't think we should accept that. I think we should understand that what happens in any part of Canada concerns all Canadians, and particularly when fundamental rights are being breached in this way. So even at the cost or the risk of uh, inflaming the situation, when, when, when something is as wrong as this, I think people of goodwill ought to speak out on it. As you write in your piece this week, that the part of this story has to be about the notwithstanding clause. So as problematic as the law itself is, how important is this aspect? I think it's fundamental. If, 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 yeah, if, if there were no notwithstanding clause, then the minorities in Quebec and the people who wish them well would be able to say, okay, this is a bad law, but eventually it's going to be thrown out by the courts. It's manifestly contrary to the Charter. The invocation of the notwithstanding clause as a kind of a preemptive step, it's embedded in the legislation, uh, basically takes, that, takes the courts entirely out of it, takes the charter entirely out of it, and basically leaves them defenseless. If there were no notwithstanding clause, we wouldn't be in the same sort of situation we are in now. And this isn't the only instance of the use of the notwithstanding clause. We have to understand there is a kind of a concerted effort going on now uh, in not just Quebec, but Ontario and other provinces to use the notwithstanding clause routinely, to use it not as the kind of emergency safety valve that people understood it to be, uh, but to use it virtually all the time, anytime they felt like it, and in so doing, essentially to undermine and hollow out the Charter of Rights. And there's a section of opinion in this country that's never made its peace with the Charter, that views it as being fundamentally illegitimate, whether because it's an assault on Quebec's sovereignty, if you're a Quebec nationalist, Mm -hmm. or if you're a parliamentary supremacist, you've always thought, oh, this parliament should be able to pass laws that violate rights. They shouldn't have to answer to the Charter of Rights or the courts. So uh, that concerns me because, you know, the, the, the understanding that was struck in 1982 when the Constitution was, the 1982 Constitution was passed, when the Charter was brought in, and yes, it contained an outstanding clause, but the understanding was 
this was going to be used only in emergencies, only when some runaway court, some crazy judge had just completely, you know, buffaloed uh, the, the, the elected legislatures in some way that just which couldn't be tolerated. That was, that was the understanding. That was certainly the way I was taught about it when I was younger. Uh, and that's not the understanding that is now being pushed forward here. The, the, if, the, if the notwithstanding clause can be used just any time you feel like, then the charter basically might as well not exist. And we are getting close to the situation, particularly in Quebec, where the charter becomes a dead letter. If it can't protect people from being fired from their jobs because of their religious faith, then what kind of charter is it? But the extent to which it's been used frequently, and I've seen some pushback on this point, that even where there's been some examples of governments considering it or musing about it, actual examples of it being deployed are, are few and far between, can be counted on one hand. Yeah, it depends on your definition of few, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and I would say stay tuned. I, I think the trend is clearly in the direction of using it more and more. So we've had two uses of it in Quebec now in the last basically couple of years. Uh, as blanket exemptions, they, they put it in the beginning of the They don't wait for the courts to rule on anything. They don't wait for any wonky, crazy court decision to invoke it. They just say whatever the decision uh, in, that may come in future and whatever the provision of the law that, we're question, that is in question, we're just giving it a blanket exemption. You've had one use of it in Ontario and one threatened use of it that came very close. And I suspect you're going to see more, if these examples are allowed to stand, I suspect you're going to see more. I wouldn't be surprised to see the government in Saskatchewan doing it. I wouldn't be, be surprised to see the government in Alberta doing it. Uh, so I do think we're heading down a slippery slope where uh, it's going to be more and more normalized. Each time you do it, it becomes easier and easier to contemplate it. And again, we were told was no government would ever dare to do this. There'd be such a political ruckus mm-hmm. uh, if they tried to, to, to infringe fundamental rights that they wouldn't dare. Well, they're daring, and each time they get away with it, the more likely it is that they'll be doing it again. It is an interesting point you make. When, it, when a government, right from the get-go, invo- evokes the notwithstanding clause, it's one thing when a government truly believes it's doing the right thing and a court says otherwise, play that card then. But it seems to me that when you pass a law, you include the notwithstanding clause right from the get-go, you're essentially saying, look, we're deliberately and knowingly doing yeah. something unconstitutional here. Yeah, and, and again, there's no argument that the, that the courts have somehow lost their minds or interpreting the, the law in some crazy way, you're simply frankly acknowledging, yeah, this, this law is in violation of the Charter of Rights, and who cares? Uh, and, you know, people like to pitch this as being an issue between Parliament and the courts, that somehow, you know, if, if, if you have to have the notwithstanding clause because otherwise you're allowing the courts to reign supreme over the, over the, over the legislature. It was the legislatures and the Parliament of Canada that passed the Charter. You know, the charter wasn't dropped on us from a passing jet. It wasn't imposed Mm -hmm. on us by some runaway court. It was passed by the people we elected, and they made solemn promises in the charter that we're going to protect and guarantee individual minority rights. Well, what do those promises mean if whenever it's inconvenient, governments can just turn around and say, you know what, we we can't be bothered. Uh, Too bad uh, if you're a Muslim in Quebec. uh, Too bad. We're we're just going to tell you, you know, we're we're going to violate some of the fundamental precepts of your faith and tell you you can't work uh, in the public sector in important positions of the public sector uh, or if you're a Sikh or if you're a, you know, a Jew who wears the kippah too bad uh, you're, 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 you can't work uh, that's the, you know, we have to decide as a country is are we going to tolerate this kind of thing is, is that something we can live with you know, in the United States and we like in Canada compare ourselves favorably to the United States on all kinds of scores 
in the United States, they made a decision long ago that's, that, where they said, you know what, this isn't just an internal matter to the states. We're not just going to look the other way in the rest of the country if, if people's rights are being abused in, in, in this or that state. That's a matter that concerns all of us as Americans. And I don't think as Canadians we should, we should stand for any less. Well, whether we should stand for it or not, I, I think Canadians can have their own opinion. But, you know, I think there's there's that position, and this is what you're getting to in your piece, that, well, we're stuck with it. It's it's in the charter, and reopening the Constitution is a can of worms, and it's incredibly difficult. But you see a path forward here. What What is that path? Well, and, and you're right to say that we are stuck with it in a sense, that... You know, the, the worst thing in the 1982 Constitution was the amending formula because it's basically made it impossible to amend the Constitution. So people like me who might prefer to see the notwithstanding clause uh, abolished, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, but what I think you can say is some, some people have already kind of unilaterally amended that 1982 Constitution because they're using the notwithstanding clause in a very different way than it was understood at the time. They violated, I think, an understanding and a pact and a convention that was established then. And if that's the case, then I think there's a, a case to be made for the federal government to say, w- w- you know, we're going we're gonna to haul that back in. We're going to rein that back in. If you pass a law invoking the notwithstanding clause, we're going to use the power of disallowance uh, to prevent that. Uh, we're not going to use the disallowance willy-nilly. We're going to use it in these very specific situations where people are basically abusing the notwithstanding clause. And there's a certain symmetry to that because... In the original Confederation bargain back in 1867, the disallowance power, that was the power by which minority rights were going to be protected. At that time, this is before we had a Charter of Rights and courts to enforce it. At that time, the understanding was the federal government will be the protector of local minorities from the depredations of local majorities. And it was the disallowance power that was going to be, going to be used to do that. Okay, at some point we, we moved on from that and we said, no, we're going to have a charter, we're going to let the courts enforce that. But if the charter is being eviscerated, if the notwithstanding clause is being used to basically hollow out the charter, then I think there's an argument that says what would otherwise maybe be viewed as being an extreme step of the federal government invoking disallowance. I think in those circumstances, uh, then I think that's justified. Because otherwise, I think we're going to be looking at more types of laws like Bill 21 in the future. And again, we have to ask ourselves as Canadians, is that the future we really want to contemplate for ourselves? Well, I mean, that's potentially its own slippery slope, or at least even potentially its own constitutional crisis, isn't it? It, You will certainly get people saying, uh, don't do this, it's only going to inflame the situation. And I understand Uh you you would want to be very careful about how you brought it in to make sure that you made clear that this was not going to be used in a generalized sense. I think it's worth putting in legislation, for example, if the federal government did it, that it would be used only in in this constrained way. But the argument that says don't do this because you're just going to make people mad, um, uh, if the, the, the conclusion of that is look the other way. Tolerate things that are intolerable because you can't stand having a confrontation. Uh, look, the, 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 the outrageous thing was the invocation of notwithstanding. The outrageous thing was the passage of this law uh, that, that tells you you can't work in the public sector if you're of a certain religious faith. Uh, that's, the, that's when the confrontation basically began. And it's not, it's not the fault of people who stand up against that if, if there's some unpleasantness that results in that. At some point, you know, if you're going to do the right thing, you're going to have to be prepared to endure somebody's wrath because they don't like what you're doing. Much more is mentioned at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew Coyne, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Rob. I enjoyed it. All the best. Uh, Andrew Coyne, columnist for The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. So an interesting piece he writes this week. Look, he's right about how the notwithstanding clause is being abused. He's right about 
it being problematic. It flies in the face of constitutionally guaranteed rights. He's right to point out the flaws in Bill 21. He's right to point out the lack of federal leadership on this. I want to talk right now about rapid tests. And I think fortunately now we're to the point where we recognize uh, there's no point in having rapid tests sitting on government shelves or in government storage rooms. Let's get those out. Let's push those out to, to Canadians so that they can be used. Here in Alberta, uh, the government began doing so last week. More than 2.5 million rapid tests or about half a million rapid test kits were made available. Uh, yesterday, the Alberta government confirmed that more are on their way. And in fact, there are plans to purchase up to 10 million rapid tests in January. So I think we finally got to the point where this is the approach governments are taking. And it's in response to this wave or this tsunami, whatever Omicron ends up being. So why didn't we do so sooner? What is the value of this tool? Are we using it the right way? Joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, David Yunker, chair of McGill University's Biomedical Engineering Department. Professor Yunker, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. I know you've been an advocate for, for more widespread use of rapid tests. Are our government's finally getting around to doing the right thing here, in your view? Yes, indeed. Yes, I, I mean better late than never. Yeah, and and hope and maybe a little bit uh, a little bit too late at this point for for at least this coming wave or maybe I, I don't know how bad things are in Alberta, but things are here in Quebec are pretty bad. Yeah. and so so yes, this is a you know this is an infectious disease, and this disease basically so people who people get infected, but what's the real problem society is that there's a period where they're infectious, and and can transmit it to other people, and so rapid tests are really extremely great at detecting this period where people are infectious and and that's what we can use them for i don't know if it's we've been we've been hesitant we've been slow we've been timid maybe it's all of the above not just in approving rapid tests i think it's been part of it but obviously making more more use of them and more widespread use of them where where does that reluctance come from do you think well i think that's a that's a really good question and what i'm still wondering about and 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 i think it's really a systemic issue It's it's a cultural issue um, it's, you know, we haven't had an infectious disease pandemic for, I don't know, 100 years. Mm-hmm. So our whole, our thinking is not framed around this problem. We're thinking about me- test as a medical diagnostic test to make sure that someone gets the right treatment. But here we have tests as a public health tool to prevent the disease from spreading further. And, and so... And so, you know, the, 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 fun, the, the interesting fact is that the tests that these governments are now giving to us for self-testing, Health Canada has not approved them for self-testing at this point in time. So we're using these tests off-label, so to speak, recognizing that they have actually, recognizing society that they have a huge role to play, and, and the, the provincial uh, health authorities have, of course, the authority to do that. But, but this is exactly, it highlights our, one of the fundamental problems that uh, we have a regulatory framework that, that is way, way too uh, stringent in terms of approving these rapid tests. And so we still, to this day, there's only, two, only a few models that are actually approved for administered use, and there's actually none that are uh, approved for self-use in, in a regulatory framework. And this is one of the big questions that I hope, I hope this pandemic will help us resolve, so that when the next pandemic comes, we have a regular framework that allows us to get rapid tests approved for daily use. And and then you know, I, I can speak a bit how how maybe we want to use them now as uh, as as in this pandemic and how they have always been or, or could be used. I mean, so the the initial vision that came out from this early paper in June 2020, uh, it's actually Michael Mina in the U.S. who you know, they made this 
model showing that when you want to cut the chains of infection, what was the most important is not the sensitivity of the test, but that you test frequently and that you'd get the results right away. And, and that's exactly the bill that rapid tests could actually fit. And they were already kind of modeling then, predicting that the rapid test would potentially be sensitive enough for detecting people in this infectious phase, so when they can actually transmit. But since that's a very short time, to really catch people there, you'd have to test basically very regularly. And, and this is then where, you know, what the, the vision there was that we would have rapid tests for everyone to test twice a week. Mm-hmm. So it's a, bit like, it's a bit like brushing your teeth. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. want to brush your teeth every day, and then one day you go to the dentist for an in-depth cleaning, no, you don't just go through the in-depth cleaning when, when, when you have a caries, right? So that, that's, and so, and so now in the current times where rapid tests can be used, so they still can be used as a diagnostic test in the, when you have symptoms. So if you have symptoms, and, and, and with Omicron now, we have to have a little bit of caveat there. It's maybe a bit more complicated. But if you used to have symptoms and you took a rapid f- test during this, uh, this acute phase of the disease, then you could have a high confidence that you would, you would be infected. But then the, the major use was to use as a, as a tool to prevent transmission, to find out if am I infectious, am I a risk for others now? So the public health use of rapid tests is really not about yourself so much, but about protecting the others. Yeah. And well, so yeah. and that, and, and, and the virus, you know, the, the, it doesn't care whether you are symptomatic or whether you're symptomatic. And that's why, for example, now if you speak about uh, Christmas and people probably going to Christmas uh, Eve parties or New Year, well, if they're going to do it anyway, then before they go, take a rapid test because you might be asymptomatic and still be, be contagious. And, and the rapid test will, will tell you that with very, very high confidence. Well, further to that point, because I think that's been one of the criticisms that maybe these tests aren't as sensitive or accurate. And, and further to that, that perhaps it, it gives people a false sense of security. What, what do you say to those concerns? Well, I mean, this has been, you know, this has been the same. This has been the same type of discourse with masks. Oh, people who put masks on, so we'll give them a false safe sense of security. Or they, they, they drive a car, they put on a seat belt. No, <laughs> I, I, I think we have to trust people, and people can make their own judgment. And of course, there's always some people who are going to be reckless. I mean, that's, 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 no, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the vast majority of the people who want to protect themselves and, and their, their families. And, and so we have to, of course, we have to educate. And a big part is to educate people and educate also the, 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 our, our public health and actually collectively learn on how to best use these rapid tests. And so indeed, if you know, if you can't, I mean, one of, the, one of the lessons of this pandemic is that no measure is 100% sure. I mean, masks, they're only partially sure. We were hoping, we, were, we put all our bets on vaccines, hoping that they would end the pandemic. But here we see they're also not working perfectly. I mean, the same with rapid tests. They're not, they're not, a hun- they're not perfect. So indeed, we have to, we have to use some judgment and, and be considerate and not use them for, for, for becoming reckless. But, but they're, they're probably one of the most powerful and versatile and now underutilized tool we have in, in, in this pandemic. So you know, rapid tests before you go to a restaurant, rapid tests when you have symptoms, rapid tests, well, rapid tests to stay, for example, so if you now children now in a class, there's a case declared in a class, everyone has to isolate. Well, what you could do is that the, 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 the person, of course, who is sick isolates, but all the other people, every morning they take a rapid test, and if they're negative, they can still go to school. And, and that would, of course, allow parents also to go to work. Um, and so, so there's many, many potential uses. And, 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 and so the sensitivity is, is really, you know, it's, if it's a medical diagnostic, then yes, you want to take a PCR because you want to find out 
if, if to be sure. If it's to make sure that you're not spreading it further, then the rapid test is actually very powerful. Uh, and, and because it actually gives you the results faster and you can do it repeatedly, it's much more efficient than a PCR test. Does Omicron, you know, and just the, the, the weirdness of this, this variant and its many mutations, does that pose any problems for our, our tests? Uh, as, I mean, so they, they, they have been. So the, the first answer would be the, the, the rapid tests. We expect them to be able to detect Omicron. Mm-hmm. And so the, and, and one of the reasons, so the, you know, I'm sure you have seen the, the, the picture of this virus with all the spikes on the outside. Right? And so what, what makes what your immune system targets and what Omicron evades is, is, uh, is, is the spike. So the spikes mutated. But what the rapid test targets are, are, are proteins or components of the virus that are inside the virus. And so they, don't, they didn't mutate that much. And, and there's no selective pressure uh, for them to mutate. And so most rapid tests are expected to still detect it, and, and I think most of them do. And, and the, many of the vendors probably should know because they, they can see from the sequence and, and the reagents they use if that's a part of the test that, that, is, that, that has mutated. And if it did, then, of course, then there's a high risk that they don't. It, but I, I know yeah. that was maybe a bit complicated, so it's a short answer. <laughs> yes, we expect them, we expect rapid right. tests to, to still be able to do that. But of course, we need to keep verifying as new new variants arise. Mm-hmm. And the kind of tests we use, I mean, you know, the, the rapid, uh, the, the, um, the Abbott rapid tests that, that are most common right yeah. now, and it's, it's fairly straightforward, but there are some steps and it does still require the, you know, the, the swab way up the nose. And, you know, so it requires some, some care, yeah. I guess, when people are doing them. What is the, the potential for simpler tests, saliva tests or breath tests? Can, can we do better than, than what we have now? Yeah, there's definitely uh, opportunities for improving. I mean, but I, I you know, I- initially we we started with this nasopharyngeal swabbing, the deep nose swabbing. Mm-hmm. So we're already at a swabbing now, which is just the frontal part of the nose. And I think it's, I mean, it's like everything, right? The first time, it's like brushing your teeth. I mean, I, I coming back to this example, I have two young kids and teaching them how to brush their teeth, it's not that easy, actually. But once you've done it a few times or tens of times, then this becomes kind of automatic. And so I think with the rapid test, the same. I mean, in the beginning, there is, of course, risk that people won't swab very well, that they won't apply the right number of droplets, and, and there will always remain some manipulative difficulty. Mm-hmm. But overall, if you have done it a few times, I think most people will be able to perform a test uh, at, a, at a really good level. Uh, now, there is indeed room for simplifying that further. I mean, actually, in, in my research, we worked on, on making saliva-based tests, because exactly thinking about how to make it easier. But then with saliva, you know, if you ate before, you have been drinking or whatever, they, they, the, the, and, and uh, to make a reliable test with saliva is actually much more difficult. Now, breathalyzer tests, I think people are also exploring with them. But again, I mean, having them at the low cost and then with the sensitivity and specificity that we're having right now, it has been actually a high challenge. But we, I mean, there's been a lot of, of development and efforts um, and and so we it could still be that in a few years from now we we might have much better tools or, or much easier tools at our our disposal. And then maybe one of the I mean one of the the big concerns about rapid tests also was the the false positive rates, right? And and this is now becoming a a, a big or a big concern because false positive means people who are normally negative who are actually negative, but then who get a positive test. 
And and if you think in in these large numbers to make a million tests, and there is one percent or two or three percent of people who have a false positive test, well, that's ten thousand or thirty thousand people now who might think they have COVID, whereas they don't have it. And and when the prevalence is low, then that's a lot of people in the system. Now the the good news is that actually when they're administered well, rapid tests like the Abbott you mentioned. They have only a false positive rate of only 0.3%, so no. three tests in a thousand only. But that's if they're well administered. But you know, but if you look now, if you go on Twitter, you can see people who made tests which actually are negative, but then because they they misread them, they think, oh no, I got a positive test. So that's why the education and the training and 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 basically. A community participation, so like they did in Nova Scotia, where they had community-based testing among one another, is a great way of of both teaching people and actually get people become active participants in the management of of, of this pandemic as well. We'll leave it there, uh, Professor Junker. Thanks so much for your insight and all of this. Appreciate making some time for us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Have a great day. You as well. All the best. That's David Yunker with McGill University's uh, Biomedical Engineering Department. He's department chair and been a big, big booster, big advocate of using rapid tests. And we're finally getting around to doing that. Uh, let's hope it can still make a difference at this point. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.